0: From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. One of the year's most acclaimed and provocative films, Bertrand Bonello's Nocturama, begins its official theatrical run here at the Film Society this Friday. A film about modern-day violence and terrorism, featuring stylishly roving camera work, blasts of hip-hop, and a lip-synced performance to Shirley Bassey's My Way, it's an edgy, risk-taking work that is sure to ignite debate. In addition to confirming its director's astonishing command of his medium, it is also unmistakably the work of a consummate cinephile. To give context to Nocturama, we're launching a series next Friday called Deeper Into Nocturama, featuring films hand-picked by the director including David Lynch's Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, Robert Bresson's The Devil Probably, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, and David Cronenberg's The Brood. To talk about Nocturama and the accompanying series, our editorial director, Michael Koreski joined programmer Dan Sullivan and film comment digital producer Violet Luca. After their conversation, we'll go to a Q&A with Bertrand Bonello after our screening of Nocturama and Rendezvous with French Cinema earlier this year.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Close-Up Podcast, the podcast of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. My name is Michael Koreski. I'm the editorial director here. And joining me today are two special guests, one of whom is from our programming department, one of whom is from Film Comment. Introduce yourselves.
2: I'm Dan Sullivan, uh, assistant programmer here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center.
3: And I'm Violet Luca. I am the digital producer at Film Comment. Well,
1: thanks for being here. I was really excited about this one because not only is the Film Society showing Bertrand Bonello's um, provocative, and quite brilliantly made Nocturama. Uh, It's opening on the 11th here, but there's also a special series programmed by Bertrand Bonello of films that inspired Nocturama, and that's called Deeper Into Nocturama. So I really wanted to talk to you, Dan, as a programmer, one of the co-programmers of the series, along with Dennis Lim, about uh, the choices in the festival and also the film Nocturama itself, in case people don't know too much about it, and Violet, uh, you actually wrote a little piece on Noctrama for a recent issue of film comment and you're a particularly big fan of the film since you saw it la- i think you saw it in toronto last year for the first time and you've been waxing on about it
3: yes i saw it a little bit before but yes i'm i'm oh, you all got about a special advance screening i'm yes. sure <laughs> for
1: just being violet <laughs>
2: with well, violet you were at the were you at the press screening in toronto no i was not okay cuz i remember that screening was one of the more memorable screenings especially press screenings that i've been to maybe my entire for the entirety of my short career um it was like uh yeah you could hear a a pin drop after after nocturama finished it was a just really like airless kind of stunned environment and that i'd already seen the film at that point but i think taking the temperature of the audience with whom i just seen it really convinced me of uh sort of the magnitude of of the of the, of the film exactly
1: how how uh, sort of major and undeniable it was It's a film that uh, yes stuns people into silence uh, that's true because that happened to the screen that I saw it at here at the Film Society during the rendezvous with the French cinema series but it's also um, a divisive film so so let's give some context for it maybe yeah maybe Danny could start explain what the film's about basically because that that'll help
2: yeah. It's a film. It's a film about terrorism, but not quite. It well, okay. It's also a film in two halves. So the first, the first half follows a terrorist plot enacted by a band of young, ideologically unspecific um, Parisians who execute their their plan um, without speaking amongst themselves very much it's very uh very procedural and methodical and they're working towards uh pulling off um a few bombings various uh, landmarks in in paris and that that's sort of that encompasses the first half of the film the second half finds them hiding out in a department store um where uh, they're sort of killing time waiting waiting uh for to see whether the coast will ever be clear um and along the way they kind of uh lose themselves in this uh consumerist fantasia that's embodied by the department store and without giving too much away uh their uh, their fate is uh basically sealed from the first frame of the film and uh a lot of the a lot of the sort of uh, the black magic of the second half of the film has to do with the inevit- the sort of fatal inevitability of, of of the film's ending, which, when it arrives, is uh, you know, well, anyway, you'll see it. I mm-hmm. hope.
1: There's a, there's a, an amazing geometric precision to the first half. I probably the second second half too, but because the second half um, traffics in a certain kind of violence, you just call it a fatalistic type mm-hmm. violence, where there's almost like a last man standing. Going on. Um, It really does feel like two separate films. And the second half of the film really feels like um, it's a Romero influence, the late, great George Romero. There's Mm -hmm. a a big Dawn of the Dead, I guess, homage going on there. But I don't know, Violet, maybe you could talk about that because I know you're interested in the film.
3: Yes. Um, I think what fascinates me about the film is just that I did an interview with Bonello and he said the first half was very much inspired by Alan Clark's Elephant. And if you watch Elephant, which went on to inspire. Gus Van Sant's elephant. It is really just people going into these different, you know, uh, convenience store, a home, and just shooting somebody and then walking out and you're just left with a dead body. And that's really the vibe of the first half. And then the second half, as you said, is inspired by George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. And that really, I think, putting those two films together is really fascinating because it does encapsulate this bizarre political moment we're at where, you know, these are young kids, they are, you know, sexy teens. Some of them are very, very, very young. And it's kind of shocking to see them pull this off. And then it's even more shocking to see what happens to them, you know, after they're in the wall. But, you know, they're, they're totally entrenched in this consumer culture and they love, they just are going to town. They're being kids in the, when they're in the the giant shopping mall and they're enjoying, you know, putting on clothes and then they'll run into a mannequin that is wearing their exact outfit. And there's some iron, you know, there's, there's some clear irony to the fact that they, it's not totally clear what they were blowing up or why they were blowing it up, but it has vaguely to do with economics. You know, they're sort of protesting the global economic order and but they still love their pop music. They still love their, you Miyake clothes and they're still totally like in love with themselves in a way that you would not think a totally politically dedicated person would be. And like that arrogance that like teen arrogance is again, sort of again, seals their fate. But I I think it's a really fascinating portrait of, you know, what contemporary terrorism looks like and what, yeah,
1: Well, that's a good question I have. The film is it's very tricky in that it kind of treads this line between um, commenting and not commenting on right. contemporary terrorism. But it, what it's evoking is 70s leftist mm-hmm. terrorism, right. or if that's the right word. So how exactly do you think he, I don't, for lack of a better term, gets away with it? Because he does. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I, I, w- I was going to say,
2: uh, in response to your bringing up uh, Elephant, mm-hmm. that... Um, and, and 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 Dawn of the Dead, I guess. Uh, neither of which, I should note, are in the slate of films that Bonello picked to show around Nocturama. I think what distinguishes Nocturama from those films is a a tendency towards abstraction, right? And um, you know, it's a, it's as the films as metaphysical as it is political, strictly speaking. Whereas Perhaps in ele- I'm mean, definitely an elephant, but also uh, maybe in Dawn of the Dead*, the um, sort of the ideological uh, DNA is is more is more uh, clear is more explicit. It's more recognizable,
3: right? Um, um, because I think I think why you can do that is because kids are kind of confused. Mm-hmm. Like there is you can't. We've reached a point where you know we've seen this in the U.S. too, where you know we've had amazing mass protests against police violence we've had uh the president of the united states and yet nothing changes everything stays the same so it's like well what what do we do in this political mo- what do we do now that protesting is not enough like what is what is the next step
1: well i mean without giving away again what happens in the end of the film but do you do you think that ultimately this movie is about futility yes
3: yeah um <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> yeah and actually, you know, to, to that point, then it makes perfect sense that uh, Benello selected um, Bresson's The Devil Probably is mm-hmm. one of the films on, on his list. Because, I, I mean, of course, it's also a great film about, uh, about uh, futility and uh, the inadequacy of any, uh, you know, any number of means by which people try to, like, find... Um, some like a, a shred of meaning or redeeming uh, value in the modern world, but I think uh, I think Brisson is is as important to Bonello and to this film as as Alan Clark mm. or or Romero because the action is similar in that it's he's using sort of like the apparatus of art of 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 cinema to conjure. Uh, something that can 't be rendered really in images or sounds, um you know what Prasan called uh interior movement and i think
1: I think that 's what 's happening uh uh in you know there mm-hmm. are yeah there are the slightest gestures, gestures literally physically, and gestures toward narrative in this yeah. film um and I think it leaves you kind of bereft, and I think that that 's. Perfectly adequate way to feel mm-hmm. after a movie these days. Yeah. Um, so I find that very powerful about it. And I, it is interesting um, not to move away from the film, but to bring it all together with the series, deeper into Nocturama. It's interesting that Dawn of the Dead and Elephant are not included in the series. Was, mm-hmm. were, was that um, intentional? Did he intentionally? when he when he designed this series did Benello say he didn't want to show those films they were maybe too obvious a choice or no i don't i don't recall him saying that but when i was revisiting the lineup
2: um it did occur to me that he it perhaps wasn't so straightforward as um here's a list of films that influenced my new movie i think it's about it's about films that he's seen throughout his life that have left their mark on him they, there's some sort of trace of them in anything that he does uh, and he kind of, he can't help himself but um, but make films that are to some degree composed under the sign of, uh, say, like Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. Like um, The Brood isn't even necessarily like the first Cronenberg film I would think of in relation to Nocturama, but in the little text that he wrote about the various films, he talks about seeing it when it was very young and how it kind of forever corrupted his his uh his understanding of youth and he, you know he included this uh he included the Romero film uh, full moon in paris which uh i don't think on the face of it doesn't share much with nocturama apart from maybe the fact that there are lots of young people in it but um as he as he put it uh, that's precisely why he included it and also because it's a it's a perspectival thing it's about being an older guy trying to make a film about about younger people and kind of, um, some of the, maybe some of the the pitfalls and complexities and weird things that are bound up in, in the act of, a of an older, of an older guy, uh, trying to make art about young people.
3: Yeah. Cause I was going to say, as someone who has seen the film several times, having, uh, Fire Walk with Me included in this series was like what? How could you? It has nothing to do with it, but also, um, as you describe, sort of his his rubric for some of the other films. It makes more sense where it's like it's more of a feeling or something that he inspires to or something. You know, it's it's not because I mean, yeah, art art doesn't always make sense. Art is not always a direct line. Let's and, say.
2: And from what he from what he said in his little in his uh, his blurb about Fire Walk with Me, it's clear that Lynch. Maybe more than any other director I've heard or read him talk about, um, Lynch perhaps most informed his understanding of the uncanny, which mm. is very, is very relevant in, in all of his films. And um, when there are little surrealist motifs in Nocturama and it really puts you in an off-kilter position, I think, mm. I think some of that might come from close viewings of Lynch films. and he says, "Firewalk with me is kind of the, the, the craziest, most experimental audacious film of his.
3: Yeah. I know. I mean, also obviously like the multiple timelines because part of what makes um, Nocturama feel like two films, not just because, you know, the first half has this action movie feel and then the second half has a completely different sort of action movie feel, but there are just like, there are times when he goes into one character's perspective and you don't really realize it until, you know, something else happens that, oh my God, this is actually a dream. This is not really happening or just the simultaneity of different actions, repeating things from different perspectives, different sounds, different actions. It's yeah, it's a great movie. Go see it.
1: Well, actually, let's let's go through the films that are in the series. It's not a very big series. There's seven films. And uh, one of the fun things for me about it, not having anything to do to do with the programming was looking at them and thinking, oh well, what is that connection? And then, to, like for the brood, for Cronenberg's the brood example, which you were just talking about, I thought, oh, is it is it have to do with the um, the anger and apathy of children? Because that <laughs> th- that the film is about these babies that are you know born off this woman's body externally in these like disgusting little blood sacks, <laughs> and that they they basically emerge because of her anger after her divorce so it's like children born of anger and i thought oh that's actually really interesting that makes sense Mm -hmm. um but i don't know if that's what he was thinking i mean he says that basically he says it's the guise of a b movie and but it shows his visionary and organic genius and that it was already at play so maybe he's thinking of nocturama as kind of like an elevated b movie in a way right Mm -hmm. right well there's also he talks about the reciprocity.
2: The reciprocity of fear, like in the brood, you're afraid of children, but the, the children themselves are afraid. And I think mm. yeah. that's, uh, mm. that's terribly relevant to
1: nacharama Definitely. And that switch that happens from the first half to the, to the second. And so the other films we have are Assault on Precinct 13 by John Carpenter, Close Up by well, Kirastami, which is wait. the one I really want to talk about.
3: Could I just say one thing, though? Yeah. Because the last line in the film is, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. and it's, it is, And it's said by a child, so... It's very heartbreaking. <laughs> very apt. That is rough.
1: <laughs> and The Devil Probably, which was the clearest to me, as, as you were saying, this kind of like mm-hmm. almost, uh, you know, this, this systematic decay of society creating complete apathy in everyone. Um, Full Moon in Paris by Eric Romere, Rio Bravo by Howard Hawks, <laughs> which is also a funny one. And Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, as we said. I would love to hear from you, Dan, if, a little more insight into close-up, the, the selection of close-up for this series.
2: This is another one I think that maybe its its selection has more to do with the mark that it left on on Bonello's imagination or sensibility. But I think on the one hand, uh its inclusion in the series has to do maybe with Nacharama's relationship with reality. This, you know, uh, reality as it's presented in Nacharama is mediated by fashion, music, um, televised images. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it's maybe also this this idea that um, you can make a film, that, that a director can make a film, which is clearly clearly formalist you know that there's a formal gamb there's a clear-cut formal gambit involved but that it can also it can do that while at this while still at the same time moving us um uh dealing with uh with relatable sort of human humanist issues because i think that's kind of the um that's maybe one of the essential things about nocturama is that it's it's really virtuosic, consummate, hyper accomplished but visually, but, uh, but it's, also like, it's also very terrifying, I right. think, on a, on a more primordial human level. Yeah.
1: The feeling that I've been getting from his recent stuff, um, I would say that House of Pleasures and St. Laurent are also films that have a kind of almost cubist design. Mm-hmm. Um, so they feel like they might be technical works, but when you take a step back, you can kind of be emotionally overwhelmed by them.
3: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's, again, that's sort of like what makes Dr. Rama, that's why you could have heard a pin drop after that screening was over, because it is in relation to something like close up, it's somebody trying on an identity, and then being like, it fits, but it doesn't. And the t- kind of the, the the fallout, you know, like dealing with what happens after you realize it doesn't quite fit. It's that's amazing all-
1: how, but how, how, how scary the film is, and uh, you, you know, you, you talk about the uncanny, and I guess it's sort of, it it does tie into more classical definitions of the uncanny, even like mm-hmm. the Totorov definition of it, right? It's like yeah. After Hours is a really good, a movie that's not in this series, mm-hmm. is a good example of a film that you can't quite define why it's frightening, as a other than the fact that it takes place at night. You know, okay. no drama is sort of the same thing there as there death and killing in the film, but there's something more, um, purely existential about the terror that it creates. And, um, and I find that to be uncanny. Just the difference between there's like the literal level of fear, and then there's the existential level of fear, and they don't really meet up in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, mean, I think it's because the action is so decontextualized. Yeah, I mean, and,
2: and uh, the angst is so thick uh, and all-consuming in the in the second half of the film, um, and then it's it's really no. Sub- I mean, I don't think. I mean, maybe the number one thing that Bonello shares with some of the filmmakers on this list, especially Lynch, is. Um, and Carpenter, I guess, is you know taking violence seriously. That it's mm-hmm. not um, when someone gets shot in, in a film. It's not a it's not no big deal, you know. Um, in so in Nachuraama, when people start firing guns, it's the I mean these are the the gunshot sound effects in this film have been engineered to be some of the most frightening uh, mm-hmm. in the history of cinema. When they finally come, it's like the most. The most terrible sort of realization of your of your uh, your worst nightmares. Yeah.
3: You know? well, I mean, it, for me, it's it's interesting. Again, talking about structure, where at the beginning of the film, they're so mechanical that they're sort of like animals, right? They're just sort of going through these very specific motions. They're they're you know, they're not communicating. They're barely communicating. They're just sort of like running through these things like a bunch of lions would run after a gazelle, and they they get the gazelle. And then they go to the shopping mall and, you know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs where all of their needs are met and then their minds sort of start to go somewhere else dark. And then at the end of the film, they're reduced to animals again and they're just in a blind panic and it's terrifying
1: one of the things I love about it and what I think helps keep it from being an overly moralizing or sensationalistic movie about the way youths are today <laughs> is that it's so trading on 70s imagery. Yeah. You really get the feeling that what you're watching could be taking place then. There's a certain level of technology in the film, but it's really not that essential to what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's so divorced from the moment. It's, it's, it's sort of a timeless film. If it had been a little more specific about now, I feel like it would have been seen as, or could have been like, a chastising movie about today's oversaturated, you know, uh, millennials. Right. You know, another thing that also that I think
2: clarifies, but doesn't actually clarify at all, like what's happening with uh, his representation of the the group that's at the at the heart of the film, is um, another thing. I mean, they're not only just uh, ideologically uh unspecific it's also there's no there's no sort of like clear-cut um uh like racial like identity Mm -hmm. for the group on some in some way it gets to i think the deliberate deliberate uh sort of unspecificity (laughs) um of of what bonello's after which is you know it's not it's not like it's not supposed to be like a a militant uh propagandistic film i think it operates on a on a more metaphysical level, it's maybe not like, it's like less an analysis of, mm-hmm. of the present than it is uh, a kind of like metaphysical description.
3: Right. But I of, mean, also the, the, the sort of diversity that you're pointing to, that's the world we live in, right? Where yeah. it's like, there are very few places in the world where it's just one type of person and that it could be sort of this that's it's sort of like this microcosm for globalization again this thing that they're ostensibly protesting against but then are totally representative of just like the total, you know the fact that they're totally enamored with all this stuff and they treat the store like a big speaker so but.
1: right the general uh, disconnect between um, the kind of like vague overarching political thought and actual specific daily right uh, relationships that we have with you know consumer technology and right. consumer products.
3: Cuz let's say you don't want you don't want to support Amazon and their warehouses where people are literally worked to death. Well, what is your alternative? Increasingly, you have no alternative. It's a way of sort of gesturing toward these things without sort of moralizing or being like super heavy-handed with it. And I almost feel like people the people who have objections to it, I feel like they would have liked it better if it was super super tight tactic
2: and i mean and perhaps another as it just occurred to me another distinction that he might be drawing between um the way that kind of like radical violent political action might look now versus the way uh it did in the in the 70s is um you know in in the devil probably um the protagonists uh choose death basically Mm -hmm. and then in the another film that references the devil, probably Fassbender's the third generation, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, dealing with the sort of, um, engaging kind of with the myth of like the bottom uh, group. It's also, it's another situation where it's like, um, on the part of the, uh, of the political subjects, they get a choice as to, as to what their fate will be. And, and they opt, they opt out of being in the world anymore, but in Nakurama uh, the kids um, don't necessarily choose their fate; it's no. it's, it's imposed upon them by mm-hmm.
1: uh, sort of godlike,
4: uh, violent,
2: uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, by yeah. society. And I just wanted to make one more point that, based on what you were saying about the sound effects, I had saw I finally saw Dunkirk this weekend, <laughs> a film that's very enamored of its own sound effects. And all I could think about every time one of those blasts went off, and I saw it at 70 millimeter, and you know the theater was vibrating and everyone it was at Alamo Draft House so people were eating nachos while it was happening <laughs> there's that literally just a moment, like World War II there's literally a moment this is actually what happened where the first time you know there's like a prop dummy that blows up on the beach it's done in one shot and you see the blast come closer and then this body just flies into the sky and the second that the body flew into the sky the person next to me got a tray of pretzels placed on their tray <laughs> pretzels with queso dipping sauce a and Texas I'll, actually treat. I will never forget that um, but anyway, while I was watching it, I was thinking that the sound effects, uh, the, the, you know, the sound design of the film goes so hard to make the sort of like authentic experience of reality and, and of war and of death and of fear. And it was doing the exact opposite because mm-hmm. all, it was, all it was doing was showing off the latest technology, whereas in Nocturama, I was genuinely shocked by every single bullet that i heard and it's hard to explain that or describe that unless you've seen it and i also don't want to really give the context for it either but right. um is working on a very high cinematic level here uh even technically yeah so he deserves a lot of credit for that
3: yeah because i mean i think that probably the big difference between something like dunkirk and um, nocturama aside from who is making it it's fundamentally like you can feel that Even though you have very, you probably have as much information about the characters' lives in Nocturama as you do in Dunkirk. But when things happen to them, you know, even if a security guard dies, you feel that that is a life. And it's not this sort of like, this was Britain's finest hour and they got out of Europe and, and all this stuff. It's not this grandiose, it's not trying to be this grandiose statement. It just, says something very powerful that is, you know, again, it's, it's working on a metaphysical level. Well, I just, if, yeah. you want
1: to, if you want to think of it as sort of like a um, boiled down action film, mm-hmm. that's interesting because we're living in a moment where um, what's really in is the kind of depersonalized, decontextualized, pure mm-hmm. sp- experiential action film. You could say that like movies like United 93 and Greengrass, you know, other Greengrass films sort of instituted that. Catherine Bigelow now to a certain extent um And that nocturama almost like is commenting on that whether yeah. whether it's aware of it or not. Like this, the, the depersonalization of that is very felt. Like you don't feel it in right. the movies where that's just the approach. You mm-hmm. feel it as a it's like a device, and it's dealing with it and questioning it here.
3: Another obvious thing would be like the Marvel movies, right, where uh, Captain America gets thrown through a building, and there's no repercussion. There's no idea. So this is like in the middle of the day in a huge city that is. Possibly New York, maybe it's Chicago, maybe it's a combination of them. Buildings are destroyed, and there's no sense of like, You know, in the 90s, there would be entire movies sort of based around like, oh, my God, they destroyed the White House. Like, can you believe that? And now it's just like spectacle nonstop for 30 minutes because every Marvel movie has to have a big set piece at the end where there's a fight scene for 30 minutes. And it's like, well, how can any part of that be memorable or shocking if it just has to sustain for that long? and you know nocturama again like i said it's like there are definite repercussions for every bit of violence in the film and it's not like yeah and like lynch too and it's which again why it's uh, annoying to see people be like twin peaks is misogynistic it's not taking this serious it's like what are you talking about it's all about that it's all about that Uh, (laughs) and how could you watch the first series and not notice that (laughs) Laura Palmer <laughs> Jesus <Anyway>. well, uh <laughs> sorry we're getting out of topic
2: <laughs> yeah uh so, well no. I uh sonically sonically speaking uh, just a, a film that's in the series that I think uh Natarama, maybe maybe the one that Nacharama most closely resembles is assault on precinct 13 and mm-hmm. Bonello shares a lot with with carpenter um especially with the way that they that they incorporate music uh, into their films. Bonello was thought of, I think, as one of the great directors in terms of incorporating pop music uh, into his films. But it's but he but here it's also uh, highlighting the fact that he scores, um, I think, all of his all of his own films uh, mm-hmm. in a similar manner to how uh, Carpenter does, and they even kind of uh, sound sound at least uh, akin. Uh, to each other on that level, and *Assault on Precinct 13 is also a uh, is an action film that's that's uh, so so spare, so pared down that it what you're left with is is kind of I think uh, this metaphysical kernel, this metaphysical kernel of a film, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and wh- another point about just the violence and the spectacle, because we're talking about different ways of representing violence, different ways of. Mm-hmm. Um, dealing with the word spectacle, you're talking about superhero films using violence as a spectacle. It almost feels like Nocturama is an anti-spectacle in the sense that, mm-hmm. though it is in a sense, it's it's aesthetically spectacular, mm-hmm. it's not the violence that's ever spectacular. Like mm-hmm. there's a Shirley Bassey, uh, there's a lip sync, one of the characters' <sighs> yes. lip syncs um, in drag to Shirley Bassey's My Way, Yes, rendition of My Way. And it's the most confusingly enveloping, hard to, Mm -hmm. hard to square moment in the film. And then a a lot of the scenes within the mall, for example, the way that it um, engages your eyes with these products, Mm -hmm. that's where the spectacle lies because it knows what's seductive. It knows what seduces us, but it refuses, as far as I'm concerned, it refuses to um, make the violence itself spectacular or in any way pleasing.
3: Right. And I mean, even, you know, the lip sync uh, hallmark of the, Of millennials of the YouTube generation, I mean, I think if you look at his face when he's doing this lip sync, he's—it's like you could see, you could imagine him in pain because he's not—he's sort of like twisting, and the people, and you know, um, his fellow terrorists are just sort of looking on in a very blasé way, and it's—and it's again, I think that's part of what makes it more than just like, isn't this a funny moment where this kid just got bored and decided to do a little gender play.
1: What's the deal with Rio Bravo? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Why
3: well, is that in there?
2: I mean, he said, uh, Benello said it himself in the program notes uh, he wrote, but uh, Rio Bravo is, of course, a spiritual uh, ancestor of Assault on Precinct 13 and, you know, in, in, to some degree, another film we talked about, but that's not in the series Dawn of the Dead. But I think what Rio Bravo makes... Uh, what, Rio and Bra- what Rio Bravo's inclusion makes clear in a way that even more explicitly than uh, sold on precinct thirteen is this idea of is this idea of a group um, that sort of is banded they're banded together and they're hiding out they're awaiting some sort of inevitable uh, fateful confrontation and how group dynamics evolve just as a result of this kind of isolation. Um, and this it's like directional isolation. It's like isolation
1: towards some sort of destiny, I think. And of course, Rio Bravo is always thought of as like the great hangout movie. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say that about Nocturama because it's a really shitty hangout
2: movie. <laughs> there is a lot I of hanging the though. Yeah. <laughs> they
1: have to hang out. It's true. They're forced to hang out, but they're not having the best time. Anyway, thank you very much for this conversation and thanks for programming this great series, Dan. Thanks for talking about this great movie violet and uh deeper into nocturama the series runs from august 18th to the 24th here at the film society of lincoln center and nocturama itself opens uh this friday august 11th and that will be running through the series you can come see the movie see one of the movies that inspired bonello it's a it's a great education (laughs) thanks guys thank
3: Thank you. you
4: Start by talking about the, the origins of the film for you, but um, I was also hoping that maybe you could talk about it in relation to your previous work, in particular your last couple of films, um, Saint Laurent and uh, La Polonide, released here as, as House of Pleasures. Um, I think there are some striking similarities among the works, and they're all sort of group portraits in a way, and they are all films that deal with very particular moments in history, And while the other two were period films, this film is very much a contemporary film. And I'm wondering if that was part of the initial impulse to sort of return to the present day.
5: Yeah, exactly. In fact, I was uh, preparing um, House of Pleasures um, in 2010. And it was my first period film. And I was a little scared of being very much disconnected from the contemporary world. and uh, So I really said to myself, I have to, to, to go back to a contemporary film just after. And my, my feeling of contemporary world at that moment was something um, that was so tense that it would explode. So my first images were images of explosions. And uh, I also didn't want to do a, a film with a lot of dialogues and some political discourse, but to treat it in another way. And I was thinking of... Action movie and genre movies, and you know, some. Um, I was very influenced when I was a teenager by some American films uh, that were some genre movies and that I thought had some uh, political content. Also, I was really um, influenced by that, and that's really what I wanted to do, and that's the basis of the film. And it's true that I wrote it at the same time at uh, House of Pleasures, so there is some similarity with the groups and the structure and relationship with time, and. Um, then I, I did House of Pleasures then I had the uh, opportunity to do the film about Saint Laurent so I put this one away and took it back in uh, uh, 2015 and maybe when I when I finished the film uh, I when I saw the first uh, first the first, uh, first, cut, the first uh, version I um, it struck me in fact like the three last film has some common points because for me they um, it's not on purpose but uh, they All three of them treat of uh, changes in the world and uh, turning points. Uh, House of Pleasures is really the the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20s, which is a major change. Um, Saint Laurent, it's the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, which is, for me, also a major change. And of course, this film is more obvious. It's the ending of something and the beginning of we do not know what yet. We'll see. (laughs) um in some ways uh, you talked about just
4: this uh, the way time is treated in these films in some ways I think the film is uh, structured around um, different experiences of time and space as well I mean in the first the first uh, section of the film it is very much a uh, kind of there's a sort of forward motion um, even though there are these flashbacks and but it's there's this this propulsive um, uh Rhythm to the film, and then when they end up uh, in the mall it, it time seems suspended um, and then of course, there's the very end of the film where time s- starts to fold in on itself um, and of course you know th- the beginning of the film having Paris as your canvas, and then suddenly having this very confined. Can you talk a little bit about just structuring the film according to to these ideas
5: um, of the film is clearly divided in two parts um, one which is like by day, exterior, um, real locations uh, with uh, isolated characters, um, very much in movement, and one part which is by night, um, in a closed space, uh, people getting together, uh, back together, and um, and yes, time stops. But there are, in fact, yes, three acts, um, and I really wanted to have a, re- a special relationship with time in both uh, in all of acts. So the first one, it's. Precision and uh, simultaneity. Uh, simultaneity, yeah. yeah. Uh, the second act is when they enter the mall. And as you said, it, time stops. And all the um, difficulties was to find some tension you know, when you're we just waiting for something. That's why we were talking about uh, Rio Bravo. It's something very amazing in that film. You know, you know something's going to happen, but you don't know when. And time stops in a way. You, know, you have all these little stories inside that. And the third act is when the police arrives, and uh, of course now I wanted the time to be really like fucked up, you know, because um, characters are tied and uh, you don't know where they are, and uh, so it's three relationship uh, with time very uh, worked out, very very early in the uh, process of writing.
4: Mm -hmm. So back to something something you, you just said, you know, the idea of like thinking about the current moment and the thing you think about is this this tension, this explosions. Uh, I mean, this film has been sort of as it played around on the festival circuit last year was described as like a terrorism film, a film about terrorism. And of course, this um, the situation with terrorism did, as you mentioned in the introduction, just change uh, as you were making the film, uh, especially in, in Paris. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm curious how this relates to your how you treat this this in the film. I think that's an interesting uh this, like, uh, the, the film has this level of detail, but also an absence of specifics, which I think is really interesting, especially in the first part. It's very process-oriented and very action-oriented. And you see in great detail how they're planning their operations. But then there's also uh, an absence. I don't know if it's absence, but it's uns- you're not speaking about ideology and about psychology. Um, and that seems to do something very interesting. It creates a kind of space, I think, for the viewer. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about
5: what sure, you were trying to do there. Many, many things in what you said. So now let's uh, first of all, yeah, terrorism today is only related to ISIS. And this was not, of course, my purpose. And I don't really talk about terrorism. I much more use the word of, I don't know if it exists in English, but insurrection, mm. uh, which was mo- more my purpose to talk about youth and insurrection is something for me that exists you know since uh, centuries since you have the notion of of state so um people always put the word terrorism in the film and it's not really the the, the purpose of um, of of it and um i as i said i wanted to to do it as an action movie and to put away all the uh, the discourse that are before the film you know the film starts you, you can imagine like a first half an hour that I cut that would be before the film, where people meet and say. And I didn't want to point one thing more than another. A lot of people told me, "Is it religious?" And I said, "No, it's not only that. Just a general tension. I wanted to show a general tension. That's why I didn't. I chose not to point one thing more than another. In fact, and uh, and how to treat it is to to to, to go back and forward from ultra realism to abstraction. Um, for me, that was really the uh, where cinema can treat this kind of feeling, uh, so that was all my work during the, the writing, the shooting, and the editing to 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 find the perfect equilibrium between, between ultra realism and abstraction
4: uh, I was curious to hear you talk maybe a little bit about the technical or sort of logistical challenges of this film um, you know first of all the the I think both sections of the film are very uh okay clearly methodically planned and mapped out. There's almost a kind of geometry to how, how, how they operate. Like the first half with, you know, you think of like Paris in the map, and almost like it's, even though the mood is a little bit like how Jacques Rivet sort of dealt with, with Paris, it's like this almost like a board game in his films. And then like the second half having this very confined space but with multiple levels and, and, and you know, choreographing
5: all of that. Um, uh, it's true we talked about a um, time. But there is also space and geography. So in the first part, I I, I wanted to be as real as possible. With uh, something that is quite close from Rivette. it's like the right uh, metro travel. It, of course, nobody cares except maybe Parisians. But I had to have a kind of you know uh, something to help me to make choices. So I, I really decided to be really um, faithful to to everything. And when you come to the second um, part of the film, you have this crazy and amazing location, which is a, a mall, you know, which is like the recreation of a world inside the world. Um, a world that would be perfect inside a world that is not perfect, which is like a, a fake dream, you know. It's, um, I know that everybody said to himself once, I would dream to be alone in a, in a mall just for one night. Well, I spend nights alone here to prepare my shooting days. And it's, it's very scary, in fact. It's like a nightmare. You know? And uh, it, this um, dreamy location, in a way, kills the characters. And of course, what, probably the biggest, well, there were two major challenges. Uh, shooting in the metro, which is very difficult, uh, because it's like real metro with real people. And it's very, it takes a lot of time. It's very, very difficult. And this location, uh, the mall, which is so huge—it's like eight thousand uh, square meters—and I wanted to have everything ready to shoot uh, anywhere I want, uh, any time I wanted.
4: Can you talk a bit about casting? Um, many of your actors are, you know, they're non-professional. This is the first role, and some of them, if we've seen in other films, it's like they're fairly—they're um, not especially experienced actors. I think Finnegan Oldfield we've seen in, in some other films, but. What were you looking for um, as you put this ensemble together?
5: Well, in fact, I, I did exactly the same thing that in the House of Pleasure. I wanted a, a mix of uh, professionals, is a big word, because they're all very young, but uh, people that have a little experience and people that have no experience. So you have different music. you know. So uh, it's like making a, a bouquet with different flowers, but the bouquet is still nice. So for the uh, people that had played a little, the there were five of them. Yeah, I watched all the films and I met them. And uh, and for the others, we uh, it's it's what we call in French on casting sauvage, a, a wild casting. You have to go in streets and bars and stuff like that. And we went in, in to, into into uh, places with uh, very um, young, political, and very radical uh, people. Um, not only people go and, and manifest in, in the street, but something like a little stronger. So they have a, a conscience of uh, what they're playing and what they're seeing.
4: You mentioned these sort of uh, American genre films that you thought had a sort of political inflections. Did you talk, did you show them to your actors? Did you talk to them about these films and, and what were some of these films?
5: I try not to talk too much about cinema with the actors because after they want to imitate or something. The only thing that I did, which was quite a huge experience, uh, the day before the shoot, I went to theater and I showed to the actors and the crew um, the uh, short film of Alan Clark, Elephant, that no one had seen before. And uh, when they got out of the theater, they were so, I think, amazed by what they saw. I think they understood something, and it was great because we were shooting the day after. They understood something about what is it to walk and kill someone? What is a civil war? A civil war, it's very simple. It's just crossing the street and killing someone. You know? And the uh, Alan Clark's film is so amazing um, for that because there is not a word in it, and you can really feel all this um, violence. So
4: we're going to take some questions from the audience, uh, I think I see a hand there. Yes, the question is about the my way, my way sequence, but was there a specific question about it? The, because the creative process of coming up with that scene and working with uh, the actor. It's
5: uh, it's actually it's um, when I had the structure of the film, these two parts and everything. Um, for me, the mole it was a place where everything is possible, you know, and. I, it's, it was one of the first things that came into my mind something quite spectacular, like you know you 're going down the stairs like in you know, a uh, 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 um, a theater and spectacular and at the same time you see the end in it already and probably this character allows himself to do that here, but he will never allow himself to do that at home for example it's they 've done something incredible and is is giving the show and probably his last show it 's some it's a very theatrical scene, quite unreal. But I think the film needed it at this moment, between the second and the third act, just before the police arrives. It's their last moment. Uh, okay.
4: I, I guess oh, I'll, I'll try to repeat. The question is about youth and the romance of, of violence. And uh, why,
5: why is it the youth? <laughs> well, did I miss the last part, I think. Uh, and who is Greg, <laughs> the, the character played by Vincent Rottier. Um OK, first, uh, first answer. It's true that I always had in my mind this kind of age, like between 17 and 21, um, for many reasons. I, I, I thought about um, all the, uh, not all, but a lot of revolution movements. And it's true that it's always been conducted by very young people. Because there is a kind of romanticism and uh, something about a little naive um, that allows them to go there. And for example, every time I, I met an actor, that was a little older, like even 25 or 26, which is still very young. It said something else, you know. There, I was missing something. Um, even I was thinking sometimes about, you know, the punk movement, musical punk movement in in 76, 77 in London. They were very young, so it was for me for me very obvious. And uh, even the uh, Japanese kamikaze, they were between 16 and 18. So it's obvious for me to to relate this. Uh, possibility of a revolution with, with the idea of youth. And for Greg, it's someone that has access to the, um, to the plastic, to the Semtex. Um, I needed a bigger apartment to put everyone inside it. So it was weird to have some, someone of 18 or 19. Um, that's why I picked up some, someone a little older, um, just, to, just for the relationship with the, uh, the plastic uh, and the explosives. But you can consider him as an older brother in a way.
4: the back, the question is about the scene um, that out, takes place outside the mall, the character played by Adele Nell and, and what she says about this being uh, something that was bound to happen or inevitable.
5: Well, uh, as I said earlier, I was trying to, to show a, a, a general tension, um, not to point something more than another. And when I start to write the film, uh, I, my, as I said, my idea of you know, today was something very tense. That would explode. I couldn't say why, you know. In a way, uh it's me speaking through her, you know. If I I am I'm, I'm sure some people would say, Okay, why did they do that? And they answer. They answer, she she answers for me. So it had to happen, you know. Um that's and I wanted the character also to to hear that from someone that could be me. Yep. Sorry, the execution scene? uh, One thing that that is uh, weird for you is the execution of the guy from the bank. Yeah. Um, It's true that you're you're totally right, because all the attacks are supposed not to kill anyone. And there is this one, uh, done by Greg, which is a little different character. Um, I I, I did it because uh, it's... I didn't want these people to be murderers. But for these young people, because I spent quite a lot of time talking with them, these kind of uh, people that are the head of financial institution, uh, for them it's like uh, there's no real human behind that. It's just an idea of a financial institution that you kill. Um, I I tried to put the targets at the level of my characters and not on my level. and for them, it was quite normal to do such a thing. But you're right to point it because it's the only uh, um, uh, act that is uh, really uh, wanting to kill.
4: Yeah. Rafifi? Uh, were you thinking of Rafifi? Yeah, it's, it's a film. It's, uh, it's just. Ah. A film. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously not, but yes. So I think, but I'm gonna check. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. The question is about the uh, the homeless couple in the film and where that idea came from.
5: Um, it's because everything was very organized in their plans and their heads, and I needed something, you know, to disorganize a little. Um, so, there are two reasons the guy you know he 's so they've done something so crazy that he he goes out and smokes a cigarette because he thinks he he 's above everything now, and he 's so above everything that he says, "You want to go with me come on come in you know it's uh, it 's like if he was unreachable and the idea of these homeless people is um, it's it 's just uh, that they have nothing they ask for nothing you know um, they were offered to have wine and food, and they will die of that. It's just you know being at the uh, bad place at the bad moment. Um, it's not, nothing more than that. But I, I needed something from the outside to, to come inside and to, to, to break the uh, perfect program in a way.
4: We have time for a couple more questions. Uh,
5: yes? Um,
4: the question is about the reception in France. Any good Q&As in France?
5: Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, the film has been released at the end of um, August last year. And of course, f- um, France was still very sensitive and sensible about the attacks. It was only six weeks after the attacks in Nice and, uh, uh, and uh, a few months after the attacks in Paris. So the, uh, the reception of the press was very, very good. Um, the, 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 the public... Um, not, not so good. People, in fact, expected from the film that I would tell what happened and explain it, which, of course, is not my purpose. I would not try to do that. It would be crazy to, to, to do that. So they were still, I guess, very sensitive. And it's a film that created in, in, in France a lot of debates on the uh, social networks and blogs and stuff like that. Um, but I, I really understand that. It was a, a very yeah, sensitive moment.
4: Okay one last question, if there is one yes yep as a result of the terror, of the of the bombings why why would deaths not depicted
5: uh, why, why are they killed at the end
4: no no, no, no like the, like why, why do we not see people dying in the bombings i guess is the question
5: oh, it's, the answer is quite simple. I decided to 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 stick always with the characters, so what you see is what they see. What you know is what they know. And they put the bombs, and they go away. After, we're always with them. And the only relationship they have with the outside is through TV. Uh, there is no parallel editing, you know? Um, so we are exactly within, in, in their point of view. So
4: I'm afraid we have uh, run out of time. But uh, I want to thank Bertrand for being here for the screening. And thank you, thank you, very thank you very,
0: all for coming. The-